Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 says this, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. The report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. When the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Well, the people who have changed the world, the innovators of the world, see the world differently than everybody else. People who change the world see problems that seem impossible and they find solutions. Think about kind of inventions that, you know, we use every day. Things like the light bulb. You know, every single day, most, uh, most any time we're awake, we, you know, are using a light bulb. But back in the day when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, the idea of the light bulb was controversial. Many people saw, thought of it as impractical, impossible, that it would never catch on. Scientist Henry Morden of the Stevens Institute of Technology predicted the in invention would be a conspicuous failure. A British parliamentary committee said that it was good enough for our transatlantic friends, but unworthy of the attention of practical and scientific men. Thomas Edison saw something different. In 1925, the television was invented by a man by the name of John Logi Baird. But after it was invented, only a year after it was invented, the American radio pioneer Lee DeForest proclaimed the device a commercial and financial impossibility. Twenty years later, people were still not convinced. The film producer Daryl Zanuck stated in 1946 that people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Think about the invention of the car. In 1899, the Literary Digest said this, The ordinary horseless carriage is at present a luxury for the wealthy, and though its price will probably fall in the future, it will never, of course, come into as common use as the bicycle. A few years later, the people, experts were still not convinced. In 1902, in the 1902 article Harper's Weekly, they wrote, the actual buildings of roads devoted to motor cars is not for the near future, in spite of many rumors to that effect. Yet a man by the name of Henry Ford thought differently. And he you know, came up with this idea of the assembly line, was able to produce an affordably pr priced car in the Model T, and by 1927, he had sold his 15 millionth automobile. 
You think about the airplane. In 1902, physicist and director of, US, of the U.S. Naval Observatory, Simon Newcomb, said, flight by machines heavier than air is impractical and insignificant, if not un utterly impossible. The Wright brothers saw differently. One year later, they had their first successful flight. Think about the personal computer. In 1949, inventor, mathematician, physicist, and computer scientist John von Neumann thought we'd come to the end of the road when it came to computers. He said, it would appear that we've reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with, human, with computer technology. People thought that computers were just kind of a, a novelty, that they could, could never be owned by individuals. But Steve Jobs had a different idea, and with the invention of the Apple II in 19. Uh, 79, I believe it was, um, the personal computer revolution transformed the world. Inventors, people who have changed the world, see the world differently than everybody else. You think about just, you know, if you're over 20, 30 years old, even things in our lifetimes that have been transformed. Uh, I remember back in the late 90s, it was the first time I had ever gotten onto the internet, and you know, you had that dial-up connection that would take 20 minutes just to open up your mail, and nobody was sending you mail because nobody was online. You know, but just the idea that it would be fast, that you would have wireless internet, that you wouldn't even need to be connected to anything. I mean, cell phones for some of us, the idea that you, know, you wouldn't have to be connected to any landline. Um, you think about Amazon, you know, the whole idea of Amazon 30 years ago, the idea that um, a company could have millions of items and that they could get to you in two days or less sometimes. Um, just is incredible. Even now, just kind of the logistics that are involved in Amazon sending packages everywhere and having these distribution centers, it's just remarkable. You know, and back 30 years ago, people would say that, that's impossible. It will never happen that you could have that kind of inventory and get it to people that fast. But people who change the world see the world differently. The famed Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi once said, we would accomplish many more things if we did not think of them as impossible. Innovators see the world differently than everybody else. And similarly, in the spiritual realm, people who are people of faith see the world differently than everybody else. It's not just the physical world, it's not just our circumstances that define us, but also what God is doing. Uh, I love bird watching. It's a hobby I have, and I'm not a great bird watcher, um, but you know, I love to do it, and I've taken people before bird watching that aren't bird watchers, and oftentimes they're amazed at how many birds I can see. And, you know, it's not that I bring the birds, it's the same park that everybody else goes to, but I can see them because I know where to look, I know the sounds, I can hear uh, some birds and know that they're there even before I see them, and I have kind of an eye for looking for birds because something I like to do, something I've done before. And so the same person who's a birder and someone who's not a birder can go to the same park and see a completely different worlds. Uh, same thing is true in regards to faith. Someone who's a person of faith can see a completely different world than someone who's not a person of faith. And, and I think as believers sometimes, I don't think we always see the reality of what God is doing. I think we sometimes live in the ordinary world where kind of our lives are governed by the circumstances of our lives, by our ordinary world, and we have a relationship of God, with God, but we don't always see the kingdom of God. And I think as a result, we sometimes miss out on what God has for us. Uh, great theologian Augustine once said, faith 
is to believe what we do not see. And the reward of this faith is to see what we believe. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. And if we want to move God to move in our lives, we need to have faith. And in this passage that we're looking at today, we see a number of people whose faith allows them to see the world in a different way. And I think that this passage that we're looking at today would ask us a few things about our faith. Because if we want to experience the, the working of God in our life, we need to be people of faith. And we need to be people who see the world differently than the world does. And so there's a few questions I think this passage begs for us. The first is, do we have faith to see the power of Jesus? Do we have faith to see the power of Jesus? Uh, the faith of this ruler in this passage is incredible. We know that this ruler's name was Jairus from uh, the account in Mark and Luke, um, but it, he's unnamed in this passage. But we know his, his name is Jairus. And, you know, the amount of faith he has is just incredible. Now, this is before Jesus has been raised from the dead, uh, of course. And to our knowledge, this, this is the first person in the scriptures that, you know, has been raised from the dead. Um, so, you know, you think there's no, there, there's no kind of background, there's no reason that he, he might believe that his daughter could be raised from the dead. And yet he has this remarkable faith to believe in the impossible. When Jesus gets to the ruler's house, he states that she's not really dead, she's sleeping. Now, in, in the ancient world, there was a, a phrase that was used to, to say, you know, to, to call death sleeping. But this isn't that word. It's simply sleeping. It's just going to sleep, sleeping. And of course, Jesus isn't saying that she's not actually dead. He's saying that she's just resting for a while and she's going to be raised from the dead. And what do the people do around him? People around him, they laugh at him. They, th they think it's nonsensical. They think it's crazy that he would say that she's sleeping. But I don't think the ruler, I don't think Jairus is laughing. Because he sees the power of God. He knows what Jesus can do. He believes that Jesus can raise his daughter from the dead. Nearly everybody else would have been giving him different advice. Nearly, if he was to ask advice from all of his friends, they would say, He's gone. she's gone now, you got to move on. you got to give it up. you got to just mourn and, and move on with your life. But he doesn't do that. He sees the power of Jesus. Everybody else laughs, thinks it's hilarious that Jesus would say, he's, she's sleeping, she's going to get up again. But the ruler sees the power of God. Then you have this woman who has had a discharge for, uh, of blood for 12 years. Scholars think it's some kind of menstrual disorder. And her state would have been incredibly sad. Um, she would have you know, had, had this for a long period of time. And this wasn't just a physical thing. This was an emotional condition. This was a religious condition. This was a relational condition. She would have been considered unclean. She would have been told, avoid crowds, avoid people. Make sure you don't touch anybody. Make sure you don't make anybody else unclean. Uh, if she was not married, it would probably mean that she'd never get married. If she was already married, it would mean that most definitely her husband would have divorced her in that culture. She probably was childless. She probably had no family, had no means of supporting herself. It was a different culture back then. She is really in a terrible predicament. And for all we know, there's nothing she's done to cause this to happen. She's in this terrible predicament. You know, you think about her friends. Her friends might have said to her, just, 
you know, avoid people, just stay away from people. They might have told her, you just need to repent of your sin. There must be something that's causing this condition. They may have told her, just, just resign yourself to this life. This is the lot that you, that's been given to you. But she doesn't live in that reality. She doesn't simply see her condition. She sees the power of Jesus. She believes that simply touching the garment of Jesus' clothing would bring her healing. She's living in a reality that's different than everybody else. And the question this leads us to is, do we live in the reality of the power of God in, in the midst of our circumstances? Because sometimes I think that we want our, our circumstances to confirm our faith. Now you think about these two stories, and you know, these two characters could have interpreted their situation kind of differently. Now, this ruler whose daughter passed away, uh, the, she might have thought, he might have thought to himself, well, um, God hasn't come through for me. I mean, if he was a religious man, if he had faith in God, um, he probably spent many nights praying for his daughter. We don't know how long his daughter was sick, uh, but she passes away. He might have thought to himself, God has forsaken me. God hasn't come through for me. Uh, God isn't powerful, perhaps. You think about this woman and you know, this circumstance that she's in, and she might, I, I bet she had been crying out to God for years, God, please, heal me. God, why are all my friends getting married, having families, have great lives, and, and nobody loves me? Why am I separated from everybody else? She could have thought, God has forgotten about me, God will never come through for me, but she doesn't do that. The ruler doesn't do that. They see the power of Jesus, and they're and they believe in Christ despite their circumstances. The heroes of the faith in the scriptures don't use their circumstances to confirm their faith. They believe in Christ, believe in God despite their circumstances. You see, David believed in God when there was a giant in front of him. Abraham believed in God when he was childless. His wife was past childbearing. Daniel believed in God when he was thrown into the lion's den. Noah believed in God before it rained. Esther trusted in God even though it would cost her her life. Faith is not believing in God when everything is going well. Faith is believing in God when everything else is falling apart, and yet still we believe in the power of God to change us, to change our circumstance. Still we believe in the character of God to be with us. Faith doesn't simply look at our circumstance and say, okay, this is the way it is. This is what God's will is. Faith looks at our circumstance and says, okay, what is God doing? What is God going to do? How is God going to be glorifying? How is God calling me to walk forward in obedience? And if we're going to live lives that are honoring to God, we need to believe that God can truly do the impossible. And when we do so, we live in a different reality than everybody else. We see a different reality. We see what God is doing, not just our physical circumstances. So that's the first question I think this passage begs of our faith. The second is, do we act and ask audaciously? Do we have faith to ask and act audaciously? Think about the characters in this passage. Jairus is a ruler, and yet he bows down before Jesus. Not only does he believe that Jesus has the power to raise his daughter from the dead, but he asks him to come and do something that was outlandish. He asks her to come and to touch the body of his daughter. This would have made him ceremonially unclean. And yet Jairus has 
has the audacity to ask Jesus, this great teacher, to come to touch his daughter that she might be healed. Then you think about the the woman with this discharge of blood. Again, she was considered unclean. She would have been told to avoid crowds. She would have been told to uh, not touch anybody. And what does she do? She goes and she fights through the crowd. She touches Jesus' garment. She believes that that's going to bring her healing. Now, we know what happens. We know the heart of God. We know the heart of Christ. But it could have went very differently. She could have went through the crowd and touched Jesus, and Jesus could have turned around and said, I know who you are. I know that you're unclean. And how dare you come up and touch me when you are unclean? He could have done that. I mean, from a religious standpoint, he could have done that. He could have cursed her, but he doesn't do that. He heals her. And he turns to her and says, take heart. You've been healed. You've been, your faith has made you well. To Jairus' daughter, it's interesting that he goes to the house. He doesn't have to touch her to heal her. In a in previous encounter with the centurion, he simply said the word and servant, the servant was healed. He wouldn't have to touch her, but he chooses to touch her to bring her healing. To anybody else, it would make him ceremonially unclean, but not Jesus. Nothing could make him unclean. Then you have the blind men who come to Jesus. It appears that they were persistent, audacious in their request. It appears that Jesus didn't answer their request right away because he was, they were following after him, and they were crying out. And yet Jesus rewards their persistence and heals them. We see in the scripture that Jesus rewards and commends audacious, bold, daring faith. Jesus says elsewhere in Luke 11, And he said to them, Which, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, also translates shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. You know, that parable that Jesus tells about a friend who uh, goes to another friend at midnight, asks him for bread, the whole family is sleeping, but he has the audacity, that shamelessness to go and knock on his door and what is his friend is going to do. He's going to give up, get up and give him the bread. Not because he wants to, but because his friend has been so audacious to knock on his door at midnight. And Jesus' point is not that, Jesus, that, that, that God is this begrudging you know, neighbor who doesn't want to give good, good gifts to his friend. The point is God is willing and, and able to give to, to those who ask of him. So if, if even a, a neighbor would do something if, if you're audacious, how much more would God do if you audaciously believe and ask in faith? The question is, are we asking things of God that only he can give? Are we asking, bold, asking him bold and audacious things? Are we asking him to do the impossible? Mark Batterson in his book, The Circle Maker, says this, Bold prayers honor God. And God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. He's offended by anything less. If your prayers aren't impossible to you, they are insulting to God. Why? 
because they don't require divine intervention. But ask God to part the Red Sea or make the sun stand still or float an iron axe head, and God is moved to an omnipotent action. Do we believe, do we have faith enough to ask boldly, to act audaciously? Finally, do we have the faith to believe in the freedom that Jesus offers? It's interesting that the, the, when the woman with the discharge of blood goes to see Jesus, she thought to herself, if only I touch his garment, I'll be made well. Then this word for made well is actually the Greek word sozo, which means saved. If, if only I touch his garment, I'll be saved. And then Jesus turns to her and says, take heart, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. Now, we don't know for sure what this woman was talking about when she talked about being saved. Uh, I don't know if she was talking about eternal salvation or not, but I think that more likely she's talking about being saved from the kind of the miserable state that she's in. Again, this was something, it wasn't just a physical thing. It was emotional. It was relational. She was ostracized from the community. She was not able to do uh, certain rituals in the, in the temple. She was separated uh, spiritually somewhat from, from God. And she's asking to be saved. She's asking for, for healing. And then she goes up and she grabs Jesus' robe. Uh, it says in the text that she grabbed the tassel of his robe. Uh, and in that day and age, um, Jewish males would wear four tassels on their clothing, which would remind them of their command, their, the, the, the responsibility that they had to keep the law. And so she grabs that tassel, which was kind of a picture of the law, and the one who has fulfilled the law and would one day go and die and rise again gives her the healing that she's looking for. And she's whole. She's new. She experiences freedom. Other people would have told her, don't, don't even go and touch him. Don't even go near someone like that. There's no way that he could have pity on your condition. But she sees something differently. She believes that she can experience freedom. I don't know, have any idea what bondage we may be in today. But what I do know is that Jesus can free us from that bondage. But we need to believe that he can. We need to believe that he can take the shackles off of us. That we can leave the jail cell behind. And when we do so, he offers us that freedom. And so this passage asks us the question, do we believe in the, in the freedom that Jesus offers to us? But secondarily, do we believe in the freedom that Jesus offers to others around us? In the last, passage, uh, the last section of this passage, we see that uh, there's a demon-possessed man that Jesus heals. And what's unique about him is that he's brought to Jesus. He can't bring himself to Jesus. He needs somebody else to bring him to Jesus. And the question is, are we bringing broken people to Jesus? Do we have the faith to believe that those who are broken around us can find healing in Christ? Are we lifting up our family, our friends, our spouse? Are we lifting up those in our life who are broken, who need him? Do we share Christ with those around us who don't know him? Do we believe that Jesus offers freedom to all and that in Christ transformation is possible? Do we believe that he offers us freedom? Do we believe that he offers freedom to those around us? There's a lot of questions that this passage begs about our faith. So we see these characters in the story that have such incredible faith. They believe in the power of God. 
They act audaciously and boldly. And they believe in the freedom that Jesus offered. <coughs> in his book, The Grave Robber, Mark Batterson tells us a very interesting story. In 1939, there was a man by the name of George Danzig, and he uh, enrolled in this graduate class with a professor by the name of Jerry Nyman. At the beginning of one class session, Nyman was teaching, and he was writing some problems on the board, and he was demonstrating two unsolvable statistical problems. It was a statistics class. Now, um, Densick came in late, didn't understand exactly what was happening, didn't understand they were unsolvable problems. He thought they were the homework assignment. So he took out a piece of paper, and he wrote down those two problems. Then he went home and just started working on them, trying to solve them. A few days later, he went and handed them in to the professor. Uh, a couple days after that, the professor knocks on his door and, and tells him, you just solved two unsolvable problems. Danzig said, well, I, I thought they were a little bit more difficult than, than usual. And this was just the start of, of, of the career that he had where he just made an incredible difference in the world. He served the United States Air Force, civilian head of the Combat Analysis Unit. Uh, he earned a doctorate, worked as a mathematical advisor to the Defense Department, uh, joined the faculty of Stanford University as a professor of operations research and computer scientist. He received numerous awards during his career, including the National Medal of Science in 1975. Um, the, the tools that he developed shaped the way that airline schedules schedule their airline uh, companies schedule their fleets, shipping companies deploy their trucks, oil companies run their refineries, and businesses manage their revenue projections. But his career kind of started with solving those two unsolvable problems. And he said something interesting about those problems. In his own words, he said this, if someone had told me they were two famous unsolved problems, I probably wouldn't have even tried to solve them. Lombardi again said we would accomplish many more things if we did not think of them as impossible. For those of us who are believers, I think we can do a little bit better. God could accomplish many more things through us if we believed that nothing was impossible for him. What in your life, what in my life, have we considered impossible? What have we deemed in our life so difficult that not even God could touch that area of our life? Some of us have deemed our relationships impossible. There's no way that my relationship with my spouse could change. Some of us have deemed our relational state impossible. There's no way I could be married. Some of us have deemed people impossible. There's no way that person could change. I prayed for them for years and years and years, but they're impossible. There's no way they could change. Some of us have deemed our financial situation impossible. We think to ourselves, there's no way I could dig myself out of this. There's no way that God could use me given the debt that I have and the way that I've spent my money. Some of us have deemed a dream that we have impossible. We've thought there's too many obstacles in the way. There's too many things that will prevent me from getting there. Some of us have deemed our lives impossible. We think to ourselves, there's no way that I could change. There's no way that I could be different. I've tried so many times. I've tried so many different things. There's no way that God could change me. What could God accomplish through us? 
if we stop telling him what's possible and what's impossible? What could God do through us if we truly believed that he's the God of the impossible? Matthew 17, 20, Jesus tells us, he says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. We serve a God who does the impossible. Let's believe in that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a God of great power, that there's nothing that's impossible for you. Lord, we thank you that we can trust in you no matter what. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who turns your ear to us, that you long for us to ask boldly, to ask audaciously of you. Lord, we thank you that we have the confidence that when we do that, you'll turn to us and show us your grace. We thank you that you're a God who offers freedom to us, that we can believe in that freedom for ourselves, but also we can trust in that freedom for others, that we can bring those who are broken before you in prayer, that we can share your love with those around us. Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in the circumstances that we're living in. It's so easy to be governed by our bank account rather than your faithfulness. It's so easy to be governed by the strife we experience in our relationship than the peace that you offer. It's so easy to fix our eyes on this world rather than on you. Lord, help us to have the faith to see a different reality. That even when we experience difficulty, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, help us to believe that you are the God of the impossible. That there's nothing that's too great for you. And help us to walk forward in faith, confidence, and obedience because of who you are and what you have the power to do. In Christ's name I pray.